0: A few years ago, Lidar Sapir Khen, a zoo archaeologist from Tel Aviv University, got a call from two of her colleagues, Ziel and Otal Khalaf. They were in the middle of a dig in Jerusalem's city of David and had just made an unusual find.
1: I think they sent me a picture and I said, okay, this small animal is a pig, so <laughs> Excavated carefully and we want to see exactly how it was positioned when it died and what happened to it and uh, don't just take out uh, the bones.
0: Following her instructions, they carefully unearthed the complete skeleton of a young piglet who 2,700 years ago was in the wrong place at the wrong time.
1: The ceiling fell on it and it was caught between the vessels uh, on the floor.
0: Do you happen to have that pig here?
1: Yeah, I have it here. In the can inbox. I see? Yeah, sure. Um, Where's the skull? Here. Yeah, that's the skull.
0: So this is the pig?
1: Yeah, that's the... Well, it, it's divided here into boxes. Each box has different part of the body. This is the box with the skull. You can see it's very, very... very small
0: this summer when the discovery was published the piglet became something of a media sensation (coughs) a piglet that was found (coughs) the discovery of the skeleton of a piglet in a first temple period home in jerusalem so what's the big deal you ask why all the headlines well this 8th century bc pig was proof of what lidar has been saying all along that pork was consumed in iron age jerusalem now, we all know that the Torah explicitly says Jews shouldn't eat pork. You shall not eat any detestable thing. In fact, it says it twice. And the swine. Once in Leviticus. So oh, he divide the hoof. And, and, and the other time in Deuteronomy. Oh, so the swine is unclean for you. For centuries, that biblical prohibition baffled scholars. After all, wild boars are abundant in the land of Israel. And pigs were domesticated here about 10,000 years ago. So why would the Torah ask us not to eat them? Because it has cloven hooves, yet does not chew the cud. I mean, in the past, unlike today, you didn't just go to the supermarket and decide whether you were in the mood for beef or chicken. You basically ate what you could hunt or raise. And for millennia upon millennia, that included pigs.
1: Yes, wild boar was always hunted here. It was always eaten Wild boar was just a part of the diet. It was available everywhere. And after it was domesticated, they raised it near the house and ate it. So why on
0: earth did a group of people, people we'd ultimately come to call Jews, decide that they were going to take a perfectly good source of nutrition and stop eating it? Researchers from many different disciplines—anthropology, sociology, history, folklore and mythology, even medicine— have weighed in and offered up all kinds of theories as to why pigs became taboo. But despite all those theories, it remained a mystery. And then, in the 90s, it seemed as if archaeology solved the puzzle.
1: The data basically showed that sites that uh, we identified as uh, early Israelites did not uh, eat any pork. There were no pig bones in the archaeological assemblages in them. And sites that we identified as uh, Philistines did have a larger amount of uh, pigs. So the idea was that early uh, Israelites did not eat pig, Philistines ate pig. Uh, so probably the decision not to eat pigs anymore was based on a self-identity uh, decision, uh, saying we are not like them, they eat pigs. But we do not. It's, a, it's an ethnical marker.
0: The Philistines were outsiders who started arriving in the 12th century BC, probably from the Aegean Islands or the Turkish coast. And when they came, they brought over their culinary traditions in which pork was apparently a main ingredient. So for the early Israelites
1: to abstain from pork? It was the local people's way of saying, this is what define us uh, apart from, from the new population.
0: And that made a lot of sense. I mean, it's not for nothing that we say that you are what you eat.
1: We see it in many cultures, even defining yourself as a vegetarian or vegan. It's not only defining what you eat, but it's also defining uh, your ideology, your perception of the, the world, your symbolic world, who you are, how do you differ from other people. I mean, it's all set of values that comes with it.
0: So it appeared as if the question had been resolved. The reason many Jews today, in the 21st century, don't order a side of bacon is because more than 3,000 years ago, our ancestors wanted to differentiate themselves from the Philistine newcomers. That was the origin of the pig prohibition. Case closed. Except it wasn't really.
1: Well, looking back, there were, there were some faults in the, in the data. <laughs> in
0: 2013, Lidar, then a young postdoctoral fellow, decided to review all the data once again and assign clearer dates to the various different bone assemblages. And what did you start to discover?
1: Uh, I started to discover that the patterns of pork consumption or avoidance are very complex. The more data you have, you see that past people behavior is a complex behavior. They don't work according to what you expect them to, to work.
0: In other words, it wasn't the clear picture of Philistines munching away on pork chops and disgusted early Israelites deciding to eschew the animal altogether. Rather, Lidar found, there were periods when no one ate much pork, or when everyone ate some pork, or periods in which pork was eaten mainly in rural areas, or mainly in urban centers, or in the Northern Kingdom, but not in Judea,
1: and so on and so forth. So, it wasn't an identity issue if you eat or not. There was some reason for people not to eat it. It was uh, economic opportunities.
0: Pigs, according to Lidar, might have become less appealing at various different periods for all kinds of reasons. They can't be herded, they don't plow fields, they don't produce milk or wool.
1: They can go on the field and eat all of the, I don't know, potatoes and everything that you had there. But still,
0: it seems that even if pigs weren't a main staple,
1: it wasn't Completely avoided.
0: Lidar's research showed that even in Jerusalem, right next to the Holy Temple, and at the time of Isaiah and Amos, people kept
1: and ate pigs. In every house in Jerusalem from that period, they had 1 to 2% pig remains in in every house. There was no place that there was completely uh, pork avoidance. But when you find a complete pig in the house. It stares at you. That there was pig there, and they, they raised it. It's a more vivid, I think, evidence for what for what was happening there.
0: And what does all this mean?
1: It means <laughs> um, that that they ate pig to some extent. I mean, <laughs> the pig was there.
0: It's true, the little piglet was there, but its discovery actually tells a much larger tale one of cultural and religious evolution, one which allows us to uncover layers of the story we tell ourselves, about ourselves. Over time, the pig has become such a powerful negative symbol within Judaism that it's easy to think that it's been a taboo forever and ever. But as Lidar's pig teaches us, things aren't always as black and white as we'd like to imagine. Hey, I'm Ishi Harmon, and after that short archaeology lesson, this is Israel's Story. Israel Story is brought to you by Tablet Magazine and the Jerusalem Foundation. Our episode today, Pigging Out. We've got three wonderful stories, all about the least likely of Israeli animals. We begin our piggish path with one of Edgar Keret's most widely read short stories, In fact, it's even entered the Ministry of Education's official high school curriculum. So basically every single Israeli teenager has not only read it, but also been quizzed about it. All you have to do, however, is listen. Okay, Act 1, Breaking the Pig. Read by Juliana Mazzola.
2: Dad wouldn't buy me a Bart Simpson doll. Mom really wanted to, but Dad wouldn't. He said I was spoiled Why should we, he said to mom Why should we buy it for him He just snaps his fingers and you jump to attention Dad said I had no respect for money But if I didn't learn it when I was little When would I Kids who get Bart Simpson dolls at the drop of a hat Turn into punks who steal from convenience stores Because they wind up thinking they can have whatever they want Just like that So instead of a Bart doll, he bought me an ugly porcelain pig with a slot in its back. And now, I'll grow up to be okay. Now I won't turn into a punk. Every morning now, I'm supposed to drink a cup of hot cocoa, even though I hate it. With the skin, it's one shekel. Without the skin, it's half a shekel. And if I throw up right after I drink it, I don't get anything. I drop the coins into the slot in the pig's back, and then, when you shake him, you can hear them jingle soon as the pig is so full of coins that it doesn't jingle when you shake it, I get a Bart Simpson on a skateboard doll. Ay caramba! That's what Dad says. That way it's educational. The pig is kinda cute, actually. His nose is cool when you touch it, and he smiles when you drop a shekel in his back, and even when you only drop in half a shekel. But the nicest thing is how he smiles, even when you don't. I made up a name for him, too. I call him Margolis. Same as the man who used to live in our mailbox and my dad couldn't get the sticker off. Margolis is not like my other toys. He's much more easygoing, without bulbs or springs or batteries that leak inside. You just have to make sure he doesn't jump off the table. Margolis, be careful! You're made of porcelain, I remind him when I spot him bending over a little and looking down at the floor. And he smiles at me and waits patiently for me to take him down myself. I really love it when he smiles and I drink the hot cocoa with the skin every morning just for him so I can drop the shekel in his back and watch how his smile doesn't change at all. I love you, Margolis, I tell him then. Honest, I love you more than Mom and Dad, and I'll always love you, no matter what, even if you become a punk. But don't you dare go jumping off the table. Yesterday, Dad came in, picked Margolis up off the table and started shaking him upside down real hard. Be careful, Dad, I told him. You're giving Margolis a tummy ache! But Dad didn't stop. It isn't making any noise. You know what that means, don't you, Davy? That tomorrow, you're gonna get a Bart Simpson on a skateboard doll. Ay, caramba! Great, Dad, I said! A Bart Simpson on a skateboard doll? That's great! Just please stop shaking Margolis before he starts feeling sick! Dad put Margolis down and went to get Mom. He came back a minute later, pulling Mom behind him with one hand and holding a hammer in the other. You see, I was right, he said to mom. This way he'll know how to appreciate things, won't you, Davy? Sure I will, I said. Sure I will. But what's the hammer for? It's for you, dad said, and put the hammer in my hand. Just be careful. Sure I'll be careful, I said. And I really was. But a few minutes later, dad lost his patience and he said, So come on, break the pig already. What? I asked. Break Margolis? Yes, yes, Margolis, Dad said. Come on, break it. You earned your Bart Simpson. You worked hard enough for it. Margolis gave me the sad smile of a porcelain pig who knows his end is near. The hell with Bart Simpson? Me? Hit a friend on the head with a hammer? I don't want Simpson, I said and handed the hammer back to Dad. Margolis is good enough for me. You don't get it, Dad said. It's really alright. It's educational. Come on, let me break it for you. Dad raised the hammer, and I caught the tired look in Mom's eyes and the broken smile on Margolis' face, and I knew. It was all up to me now. Unless I did something, he was dead. Dad, I said, grabbing him by the leg. What is it, Davy, Dad said, still holding the hammer high in the air. Could I have one more shekel, please? I begged. Please, give me one more shekel to drop into Margolis tomorrow, after my hot cocoa. Then I'll break him, tomorrow, I promise. One more shekel? Dad smiled and put the hammer down on the table. You see, the boy has developed an awareness. Yes, an awareness, I said. Tomorrow. There were tears in my throat. Soon as they left the room, I gave Margolis an extra tight hug and let the tears pour out. Margolis didn't say a thing. He just trembled quietly in my hands. Don't worry, I whispered in his ear. I'll save you. That night, I waited for Dad to finish watching TV in the living room and go to bed. Then I got up very, very quietly and sneaked out through the balcony with Margolis. We walked together in the dark for a very long time till we reached a field of thorn bushes. Pigs love fields, I told Margolis as I put him down on the floor of the field. Especially fields with thorn bushes. You'll like it here. I waited for his answer, but Margolis didn't say a thing. And when I touched him on the nose to say goodbye, he just gave me a sad look. He knew he'd never see me again.
0: Edgar Keret O Matias composed and performed the original music in that story which was sound designed by Yochai Meital and Zev Levi. Now, BLTs and pork chops are not the first thing that comes to mind when you think about Israel. In fact, that's exactly what our producer Yoshi Fields heard when he went out and asked people on the street about it.
3: Do you know if pigs are grown in Israel? Do you know anything about the industry?
4: It's not kosher. It's not kosher. I'm curious if oink you got... Going. Yeah, oink going. We don't have to eat it. We don't have to eat it.
0: There's no pig in Israel.
4: We thought not to touch tradition.
0: Even the secular don't eat. It's a Jewish state. And, Yosh, even those who did know about the local pork industry seem to have a pretty odd belief about
3: how pigs are raised here. Right, again and again, I heard that... They raise them on, on docks, like a platform.
1: We don't let them grow on the earth, but like a bit uh, on something, so they're not touching Eretz Israel. <laughs>
5: it's not on the ground, it's illegal in Israel. It's on a platform, uh, the, that's what, what I know. Three or four stairs above the ground because... It's not allowed to raise pigs on the sacred land of the state of Israel.
3: And is that true? Uh, yeah, no. It's a total urban legend. So pigs aren't raised on platforms? No, 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 they they are. But it has nothing to do with Judaism or purity or kashrut or anything like that. It's, well, just easier to clean their poop that way. (laughs) Got it.
0: Over the last year or so, Yoshi spent a lot of time thinking about pigs. He doesn't eat them. He's more of a fish and the very occasional chicken breast kind of vegetarian. But he went up and down the country, tracing the history of swine in the Holy Land. I did.
3: And the strange thing is that the more you look into the story of pigs in Israel, the less you end up talking about the pig itself. What What do you mean? Well, the ongoing battle. Yes pork, no pork. It's mostly symbolic. It's really a battle over the identity of the country. Is it democratic? Is it Jewish? Both. Neither. And these questions have shifted over time, as Israel has grown from a fledgling nation to what it is today. Like it or not, the pig and the story of Israel are actually intricately tied. My fascination with pigs all started when I found out about this kibbutz in the middle of the Jezreel Valley. Kibbutz Mizra. And that, dear listeners, is where our story
0: begins. Here's Yoshi Fields with act two, a Zionist pig. In that house, I did uh, third to sixth
6: grade. So you lived in all these houses? I lived, I played, I, we went. I lived in a paradise, but everything was provided. Dining hall always gave you enough good food. We used to have a lot of parties, especially on the big holidays. We climbed on the mountains
3: there. Everything was free. Pioneers but, in a lot of ways. Yes, <laughs> pioneers. That's Yosef Hadar a proud member of kibbutz Mizra. Born and bred. The kibbutz is located in northern Israel, between Afula and Nazareth. If you close your eyes and imagine a kibbutz, the sprawling agricultural fields, the smell of cow manure in the air, tractors and golf carts rolling past, that's Mizra. Nobody seems to be in a rush. And Yosef is a case in point. I met him for what I expected, to be a quick tour. This little house used to be a shoemaker. We used to have our remember shoes. My also mother carrying a big challah going from the old dining hall. The silo here has been made into an optometry space. But it turned out to be an almost two-hour-long stroll down memory lane. This used to be the road, and then they put this new road. And He talked nostalgically about the socialist roots of the kibbutz. From the beginning, the kibbutz shared everything. A woman got a a dress from her parents in Poland, it became everyone's dress. I mean, I was told that even underwear was shared. Mizra was established in 1923 by Polish and Russian immigrants. And despite limited resources and, well, undergarments, they transformed what was mostly swampland into a livable settlement and profitable enterprise.
7: People came here and said, I'm going to be a new kind of Jew. And I'm going to do things that Jews never did. I'm going to work in the
3: fields. That's Chen Shalach, whom I met in front of the dining hall. He's a second-generation Mizrin, clean-shaven, with short brown hair and thin metal rimmed glasses.
7: When I see pictures of my grandparents from Warsaw, the few pictures that were left, very religious and not very modern, they seem to me like another kind of person.
3: Like many early kibbutzim established in the 20s, Mizra's story is one of communal sacrifice, of tilling the land and making a dream into a reality. It's basically the typical kibbutz tale. Except, that is, for one thing. (coughs) This is why I'd come to Mizra. All this area was the pigsty. Everybody knew Misra
7: is the main factory. We had pigs. We were the biggest. The
3: best. Pigs. And where? In the very place that's often romanticized as the quintessential symbol of the Jewish state, the kibbutz. Huh? Now, I should say, off the bat, that even though there are a handful of religious kibbutzim, 16 of them, to be exact, the socialist kibbutz movement was, by and large, a bastion of ardent secularism. But still, pork? I had to find out more.
8: Uh, hi, I'm Orit Rosen. I'm a professor at... Cut. Uh,
3: <laughs> I went to Tel Aviv University to speak with Orit. She's an expert on the early years of the state, and specifically the issue of food during that period. I had been told that if I really wanted to understand how pigs got to Misra, she was the one to speak to. Orit immediately started talking about a period known as the Tsenna, or the austerity years.
8: Between 1948 and 1951, the Jewish population doubled. Around 700,000 new immigrants landed in Israel.
3: And as a result...
8: Food was getting scarce.
3: Every three minutes, one new person comes into the country.
7: Every three minutes, the simple matter of food becomes more
3: serious. The government implemented a ration system.
7: Three eggs per week. One pound
3: of sugar a month. Three ounces of margarine a week. Instead of fresh eggs, there was...
8: Egg powder? Not tasty. Rice was uh, scarce.
3: And the fish? Frozen. Not nice. Most of all, however, people craved meat. No meat
6: today. How will all these people be
3: fed? Can they be fed? So pigs were an answer to this.
8: Okay, so it's a good solution, first of all because it's easy to grow and they grow very, very quickly.
3: See, unlike a cow, which typically has a single calf in nine months, sows are pregnant for less than four months and give birth to around 10 piglets at a time. Pigs could, therefore, potentially feed a lot of people and fast. And that's what compelled one man on one kibbutz to spring into action. The kibbutz, of course, was Mizra. And the man was a five-foot-tall farmer by the name of Yaakov Rabin.
9: He was a man of humor with a lot of Jewish culture. Our story begins in
3: 1955, when a large crate was delivered to Mizra. The contents of pregnant sow. Part 1. A Jewish Pork Startup. Yaakov, the man waiting for the sow, had immigrated to Palestine more than two decades earlier, in 1933. He had actually grown up in a religious family from Lithuania. But above all,
9: he was a huge Zionist.
3: Yaakov died in 1986, but I spoke to his son, Dudi Rabin, who still lives in Mizra. He told me that, ironically perhaps, it was Yaakov's Zionism that made him into a pig farmer.
9: Pig sounds to some Jews, like something terrible. But he saw this as a Zionist act. It was part of his Zionist vision.
3: According to Yaakov,
9: the Zionist idea was to be one nation amongst all other nations. To take a dispersed and confused people with all its troubles and problems and turn it into a people like any other.
3: Like many other early pioneers, Yaakov believed in creating a new Jew, A stronger, more modern Jew who stepped out of the cheder or yeshiva and stepped onto the field, who left past persecutions and pogroms and the Holocaust behind, and shed many old world traditions. And if pigs could help that goal, if pigs could help the country, then Pigs it was. He thought to himself, I have to distinguish
9: or separate between faith or religion and the needs of the hour.
3: And that's how Yaakov Rabin of Kibbutz Mizra became a self-appointed savior.
9: He wanted to make sure that the country can feed the people that live in it to give them food.
3: Like any good old-school kibbutznik, Yaakov was determined. After that first sow arrived, he bought some more pigs, and converted an old cow shed into a proper pigsty. Two years later, he turned the old kibbutz dairy into a tiny meat factory.
9: Very small in the beginning.
3: Like the size of a home kitchen small. In fact, they didn't even have ovens. So for the first two years, they had to do all the cooking in the dining hall kitchen. But ultimately, their hard work and patience prevailed. And on Tubishvat, 1957... Kibbutz Mizra had its very first pig roast.
9: The first whole pig, all its parts.
3: Mizra wasn't the only kibbutz to delve into the world of pig farming. But it was the first for the factory, even if it was tiny. And it quickly became the country's biggest producer of pork.
9: And we started to produce salami, sausages.
3: Eight-year-old Duty was one of the factory's first workers, and still remembers long hours on the makeshift assembly line, his legs dangling off the counter as he tied cocktail sausages into threes.
9: We worked from the early morning till late night. We invested our souls there. For me, it was like a home, more than my actual house. I was physically there more than I was home.
3: Soon, Mizra's pigs became a core part of an ideology. For me, it stands for freedom. Chen Shalach, the kibbutz resident I met outside the dining hall once again. The pigs, he told me, came to represent a new identity. A sense of... Being pioneers. ...duty agrees. eh?
9: atikva, right? To be a free people in our own land.
3: But their principles and efforts notwithstanding, Mizra members didn't know if their illicit activity would pay off. If anyone in Israel would, excuse the pun, bite. They anxiously waited to see what would happen when their taboo meat hit the market. But when it did…
4: It became very popular. They used to sell it inside a pita with tahini and some tomatoes. That's Ronit Vered, a food journalist
3: for the Israeli daily Haaretz.
4: Well, you know, in the 50s they didn't have a lot of restaurants, of course, because of the austerity and because of the uh, poor uh, economical conditions. But they used to sell it at a lot of these tech places that were located at gas stations. Um, steakia was like one of the most well-known establishments of food.
3: To Mizra's delight, enough Israelis had an appetite for swine. And well, socialism aside, when there's a demand, there will quickly be a supply. Before long, many other kibbutzim, as well as private farms, wanted in on the action.
5: From around 150 kibbutzim, half of them were growing pigs.
3: That's Giora Goodman. He teaches at Kenaric College and loves to talk about pigs. In fact, that's his area of expertise, the history of pigs in Israel in the mid-20th century. Giora told me that for a brief moment in the late 50s and early sixties, pigs were everywhere. Pig
5: raising in Israel was at its height in the early 1960s. By
3: 1962, There were pig farms in many, many dozens of places
5: around Israel, in kibbutzim, in farms around Tel Aviv
3: and Haifa, Nazareth, even inside Jerusalem. It was, according to Giora, the golden age of pork in Israel. And this brings us to part two, the anti-porkers strike back, or who is the new Jew? The fact that some people ate pork didn't mean that mainstream Israeli society approved of eating it. Unsurprisingly, the matter quickly became a heated public controversy. Debated again and again, more than a dozen times in three years in Israeli government meetings, you you would think they haven't got anything else to talk about. And why was this such a hot potato? Well, because of course, pork occupied and still occupies a symbolic place in the Jewish psyche. (laughs) Here's Ronnie Barrett
4: again. Pork is always the most emotional part of all these kosher laws. A lot of Jewish people who eat oysters or who eat shrimp and do mix meat with dairy products do not eat pork.
3: And honestly, I get it. I don't keep kosher myself, but still, it was years before I ordered my first BLT. I actually remember that moment well. I picked up the sandwich, took a hesitant bite, felt weird, and quickly removed the bacon. I couldn't really articulate why I had done that. It came from some guttural aversion to pork, originating from some place deep inside of me, a place I didn't even know existed. And I guess many Israelis back in the 50s and early 60s felt the same. Most stayed away from the forbidden animal and its flesh. Even those who did eat it did so in very specific circumstances. Rarely at home, and almost exclusively at those gas station steakhouses. And even there, people used code when ordering, asking for basar levan or white meat. This charade played out on the national stage as well. While the pig industry was growing, most wanted to hide any and all traces of its very existence. It's like a secret history. At the time, Israel was proudly broadcasting all its achievements.
7: Tobacco curing in the friendly sun, in new tyres ready to roll.
5: If you look at the newspaper articles or the films, documentary films, newsreels, you'll see how the camera describes every agricultural product. The food
7: industry is the biggest.
5: And here the cattle, and here's how we grow our peaches and all that.
7: 50,000 cases of the finest Jaffa oranges.
5: Candy is one of the products exported to the United States. Everything
3: except one animal. Pigs. And if you ask Yora, this exclusion, this active hiding of pioneering pig farmers like Yaakov Rabin, was completely intentional.
5: These people could move mountains. These are the
3: people that if it wouldn't have been pigs, everybody would have been proud. But basically, no one in the leadership, not the secular, not the traditional, and definitely not the religious, was proud. The religious establishment was obviously against the presence of pork in Israel, and wanted it banned altogether. For them, a Jewish state meant a state that followed central tenets of halakha, religious Jewish law. On the right, Menachem Begin, who would later become Israel's prime minister, told the Knesset that the issue of pork was an existential national threat. He recounted with horror how, as a 10-year-old boy in Belarus, he fought with non-Jewish children who tried to force him to eat pork at school, and concluded that, quote, pigs should never be raised in the state of Israel. He even called Jewish pig farmers, people like the socialists of Mizra, greedy and money-hungry. On the left, too, there was strong pushback. Both Bero Kotsen Nelson, the intellectual father of the secular labor movement, and Natan Alterman, the famous socialist poet and journalist, published essays about the importance of keeping pork out of Israel. They, however, objected on nationalistic rather than religious grounds. They thought that having a Jewish state wasn't about imposing religious law, but rather about preserving and strengthening Jewish identity. One particularly central voice was that of Menachem Cohen, a former member of Knesset from the Labour Party. The coming July 26,
9: I will be young again, I will be 89. Okay, now the questions. What do you want to hear from me?
3: Menachem himself actually is religious. In fact, he's a rabbi. But his anti-Pork stance didn't come from his personal commitment to Halakha. Instead, it was rooted in his conception of Israel as a nation-state.
9: The Jewish state has to have some symbols, some frame what makes the Jewish state.
3: Menachem's political activism days are now long behind him. But since he was an important player in the parliamentary battles over Pork, I went to visit him in his office in Jerusalem. The walls are covered with framed black and white photos. You see this man? Ben Gurion? Yeah. In one, he's chatting with Ben Gurion. In another, he's sitting next to Yitzhak Rabin. I think I have it here. He shuffles through some papers on his desk and pulls out a speech on pigs he gave in the Knesset. Yes,
9: it is. But I have it in That's
3: okay. Okay. Adonia Yoshevros, Havreya Knesset. There is no greater symbol of the desecration of the people of Israel than the pig. It is an affront to our independence, to all that has kept us together as a nation.
9: Okay, it's
3: enough. He switches back to English.
9: The pig was the symbol against the Jewish people. It's not exactly like the swastika,
3: but but it has the same meanings. It's not exactly like the swastika, he says, but it has the same meaning against the Jewish people. And just as it's impossible to imagine Israel allowing swastika flags or t-shirts to be manufactured and sold in the country, many thought it should be illegal to raise pigs, too. After all, it isn't just that pigs aren't kosher. It's the fact that throughout Jewish history, they have been an anti-Jewish symbol, Think, for example, of the Hanukkah story and the Maccabee revolt against King Antiochus, who forced the Jews to eat pork and worship idols in the Holy Temple. Or about the Middle Ages in Europe, when anti-Semitic imagery often portrayed Jews as pigs. Or even about Tsar Nikolai's army, in which Jewish conscripts were made to eat pork in order to demonstrate their allegiance to Mother Russia. And believe me, the list goes on and on. So that's essentially where things stood. The religious were mortified by the idea because of, well, religious reasons. And many others simply saw it as an affront to the notion of a Jewish peoplehood. At its heart, the debate was really about identity. Now that Israel existed, was it time to create a society based on the Judaism of yesteryear? Or rather, forge a new Jewish future? And if the answer was somewhere in between, how and where do you draw the line? All this came to a boil with the pig law of
9: 1962. Honestly,
3: According to this new law, which was supported by both religious and secular legislators, you could just liquidate the pigs. That's how the law says it. Pork historian Giorg Goodman, once again.
5: Till this day, there are only two reasons why you can go in somebody's house and search without a warrant. One of them is tax inspectors, and the other one is to inspect whether somebody is raising pigs there.
3: The law which is still on the books today, outlawed the raising of pigs. And the crackdown began almost immediately. There was one
5: guy who was given the job. He had this gun, and he would go around all places where pigs were raised.
3: That's right. A hitman, his name was Menachem Bari, was hired by the government to go all over the country to seek out pigs and kill them. Bari was meticulous and kept detailed records. For instance, on August 8th, 1963, he wrote in his logs, I inspected the room of farms and, to my surprise, found three pigs there. I destroyed the pigs at the Rishon LeZion dump using a shotgun. With Bari on the job, it didn't take long before the pig farms, that had popped up all over the country, began to disappear. But that, surprisingly, wasn't the end of Misra's enterprise, or, for that matter, of the nascent Israeli pork industry. See, despite the anti-pork vitriol, there was a legal loophole. Israel's population wasn't, of course, entirely Jewish. For Muslims, pork is haram, forbidden, and most, indeed, don't eat it. But even the most vociferous anti-porkers agreed that local Christians should still be allowed to eat pork if they wanted to. So three exceptions were made to the law. Pigs were allowed in zoos, they were allowed in research facilities, and most notably, they could be raised in a few Christian towns and villages in the north of Israel. With no other real alternative at hand, Duty's father Yaakov moved Misra's pigs to Nazareth, a 30-minute bus ride away.
9: My dad took the pigsty to Nazareth. He took care of these pigs till his last day.
3: It was ultimately a simple workaround. By moving them to Nazareth, the pigs themselves were raised elsewhere, and Mizra could still maintain a small meat factory on its premises. But the pigs' golden age? It was over. While Mitzra and a few other farms did continue to produce pork within the limitations of the law, the country as a whole had spoken, and pork was out.
5: Most Israelis, to this day, have never seen a live pig. Only in films. Only in uh, Winnie the Pooh has a friend, Piglet. So you know how pigs look.
3: And then things got even worse for Mizra. Part three. My plate, my business.
7: In 1977,
3: for the first time in its history, the Labour Party lost power. Menachem Begin's right wing government was now at the helm. In 1984, Shas, a new ultra orthodox Sephardic party, appeared on the scene. Shas, and Agudat Israel and Degel HaTorah, the Ashkenazi ultra orthodox parties that had for decades been on the political periphery, gradually became central players. So it was just a matter of time before religious clashes erupted. <laughs> El Al, the national airline, was barred from flying on Shabbat or Jewish holidays, a law against publicly selling bread during Passover pass. There were also attempts to ban soccer games on Shabbat, to close cinemas, And of course, the seemingly dormant question of pork resurfaced. With greater political power than ever before, religious legislators sought to close any and all loopholes that allowed the forbidden animal to be grown in the Holy Land. In 1985, a group of politicians, supported by Prime Minister Simon Peres, sought to amend and expand the 1962 law by making it absolutely illegal to sell and distribute pork in Israel.
10: This is a Jewish state. There are laws, not many, that are related to Israel as a Jewish state, not to Israel as a democracy. And I support them. The pig is an impure thing in Judaism. That
3: should be implemented as law. That's Igal Bibi. Igal is a politician who served as a member of Knesset for the Maftal, the Religious National Party.
10: So the question is, what do we abide by? Judaism or democracy? And do you think Judaism? Of course.
3: Because we are the state of the Jewish people. To be fair, he wasn't advocating for a theocracy. He believes in a democratic state. He just thinks that that doesn't mean that everyone can do whatever they want all the time. Even democracies, he told me, have rules that limit people in different ways. And he's obviously right. Even if you're a nudist, for instance, you can't just walk down the street without any clothes on. So as far as he and many other politicians were concerned, a pork prohibition was simply another one of those limitations, a necessary limitation, in fact. It's a
10: bigger issue even than security. A person who has lost their Judaism, it's not just that he isn't Jewish, but it's also that his children and grandchildren and great grandchildren aren't Jewish. So, okay pig, no pig, the most important thing is to save the Jewish people from assimilation.
3: But many Israelis saw this as religious coercion. A vigorous secular lobby quickly emerged. Not eating pork, I hope, it's not the symbol of being a Jew. Abraham Poraz, one of the founders of the Shinui Party. We should have a country that it has
10: freedom of religion. And somebody that wants pork, let him have it. If somebody wants to drive on Shabbat, let him have it. If you want to eat on Yom Kippur, or you want to eat
3: the bagels on on Passover, it's freedom. In an interesting development many secular folks who had previously objected to pork for cultural or sentimental reasons began viewing it as a matter of civil liberty. It's not that they suddenly started stuffing their mouths with pigs in a blanket, but they did go out to the streets to fight for the right to do so, if they so pleased. I really went to bat on this one. That's Naomi Hazan an academic and political activist who would go on to serve as a member of Knesset for the left-wing Meretz Party.
6: I keep a kosher house, two sets of dishes, even two sinks. <laughs> I change dishes on Pesach, etc. I really am not a pork eater at all.
3: Nevertheless, when attempts to expand the pig law were put forth, she was enraged.
6: It hit me that it may very well be uh, Very important issue of human rights. Because essentially, such a law says we can determine what you will eat and what you will not eat, what can be on your plate and what cannot. And this kind of incursion into the most simple daily act of eating because of the beliefs of others is such a violation of freedom of religion and freedom from religion.
3: People like Naomi packed the streets. They carried signs with slogans like I'm afraid of a Haredi state and today the pig, tomorrow you. Some even brought pigs on a leash, claiming it was their democratic right to have them. Folks from Kibbutz Mizra, like Khan, were obviously on the front lines.
7: All the kibbutz was involved in it, taking the buses going to Jerusalem, to the Knesset. It's very clear who is the good guys, we are, and we are the bad guys, the religious.
3: And as all of this was reaching yet another boiling point, history stepped in.
7: In Moscow, the hammer and sickle is
6: lowered for the last time.
3: When the expected million Soviets are finally here, Russian will be Israel's second language. Our final chapter, capitalism saves the day, sort of. In 1989, the USSR opened its borders. And shortly thereafter, more than a million Jewish immigrants started pouring into Israel in what became known as the Great Russian Aliyah. Many of them, like Anna, whom I met outside a non-Kosher deli in Jerusalem, were pork eaters.
4: In Ukraine, I eat everything. Pork, too. When I came to Israel, I ate all types of food, including pork.
3: Decades of crackdowns on Jewish observance under communism had made finding kosher meat in the USSR a difficult task. Over time, pork had slowly crept into the menu and had, for many Soviet Jews, become an integrated food. Their arrival in Israel was a watershed moment. Seemingly overnight, the makeup of the country changed, and with it, social and dietary norms. In 1996, Israel Baaliyah, a Russian immigrant party led by Natan Sharansky, gained seven seats in the parliament and joined the coalition. So while Knesset members like Yigal Bibi would continue to fight against pork, the demographic shift basically put an end to the possibility of outlawing it for good. Once again, just like in the late 50s, the heightened demand meant one thing and one thing only. Greater opportunities to supply. Small pork producers like Kobe Tribich came onto the scene. In the market, suddenly all you heard was Russian
0: and tons of people. I said, hold on, there's an opportunity here.
3: In 1989, Kobe took over his dad's butcher shop in Tel Aviv. It was called Tivtam. Soon, it started to grow and grow and grow. Over at Misra, on the other hand, business was actually shrinking. See, Misra had decided back in the 70s that their best route to survival would be to focus on expensive, high-end pork products. For a while, this business model worked. It wasn't a big market, but the factory, and with it the kibbutz, were able to get by. But with the massive wave of immigrants, many of whom didn't have jobs or extra money to spend on fancy salami, that all changed.
9: The sales plummeted.
3: Nobody was buying, Judy Rabin told me as he shook his head.
9: The Russians that arrived at the beginning didn't have any money. They were looking for different things. Kobe
3: Tribich was selling everything. Kobe's cheaper, lower quality pork was all the rage among the new immigrants. Miser was, essentially, priced out of the market. In 2006, they decided they had no choice but to sell their factory. The buyer? Kobi Stivtam. Capitalism, as it turns out, was the final nail in Mizra's coffin. It was a difficult moment for the kibbutz, and for duty in particular.
9: More than angry, I felt hurt.
3: As he saw it, it wasn't just the end of the kibbutz factory. It was the end of a Zionist dream. Half a century earlier, his dad had brought that first pregnancy out to Mizra. Judy had spent his childhood tying cocktail sausages and listening to his father talk about pork as an ideological symbol, a rallying cry for socialism, pragmatism, and liberty.
9: I did all I could so that the factory would succeed. It stood for freedom. But today people don't have those Zionist values. Social values don't interest them at all. What they care about is making money. This country was built on an idea that in order to survive, one needs to be united, to get together. Today, it's just competition.
3: And in that competition, Mieser was the clear loser. Tivtam became the biggest pork seller in the country. Today, they are the seventh largest supermarket chain in Israel, with 41 locations. And Kobe, the new face of pork, didn't talk about the new Jew, secular values, or religious freedom. For him, it was all just business. While the fight over Israel's religious identity continues, the pork battles of years past seem to have subsided. A delicate status quo has emerged. Pork is sold in more and more establishments, but is still largely out of sight, at least publicly. In fact, most pig farmers around the country didn't even want to talk to me for fear of unnecessarily rocking the boat. Though Misra no longer raises or sells pigs, it does keep a small, snorting reminder of its porcine past.
8: So, Berber, Berber. This is
3: Barbara. Barbara. Berber and Barbara. Kibbutz members and visitors feed them and coo over them. But they are no more than pets, whose purpose is to delight young children. Children who are increasingly oblivious to anything the pigs once stood for.
0: Yoshi Fields. Thanks to Chen Shelah for allowing us to use excerpts from his 2016 documentary film, Praise the Lord. We'll be right back. And now, back to our episode. Before the break, we heard how, over the decades, pigs meant different things to different Israelis. A promise of a new and pragmatic Zionism, A threat to our national identity, an emblem of religious liberty, a prime example of menacing assimilation, a secular badge of honor, and for the folks of Kibbutz Mizra, the epitome of the struggle between a socialist Israel and a capitalist one. But not that far from Mizra, in Haifa. Pigs, or rather wild boars, stand for something else altogether— Here's Marie Rode with Act 3, Where the Wild Things Are.
11: In 2001, I turned eight. It was also the year my mother finally allowed me to ride my bicycle to my after-school dance class by myself. I was, she told me with a warm smile, a big girl now. The dance studio was a seven-minute bike ride from our home in the north of Berlin. Seven minutes. But a big chunk of that ride was through the Tegla Faust, a thick, dark forest. And everyone knew that the Tegla Faust was home to a monster. On a cold November afternoon, as the sun was setting and the forest was becoming even darker than usual, I entered the woods. First, I heard a crackle, then a deep grunt. I looked over my shoulder and froze. The monster was right behind me, darting towards me at full speed. I felt the wind whipping against my face as I paddled as hard and as fast as I possibly could. My lungs were burning, my palms sweating. I was able to gain some lead, but I didn't think I could keep it up much longer. I was sure the monster was about to overtake me. I glanced back one more time, And that's when I saw him, the beast. He had dark bristles, long tusks, and fierce eyes. I thought it was the end. But then, all of a sudden, I noticed that he was slowing down, even seemed to be panting. I caught my breath. The monster turned out to be an asthmatic wild boar. I got away that November afternoon, but ever since, wild boars visit me in my nightmares. I'm not joking. Even now, 20 years later, I occasionally wake up drenched in sweat. I look around and remind myself that I'm not in Berlin anymore. I live in Israel. I'm safe here. Or at least, so I thought. Wild boars are taking over Haifa.
12: She says
11: the boar attacked her legs with its horns.
12: It's uh, becoming more and more terrifying.
11: Since the start of the pandemic, Haifa has been under attack. There have been countless reports of wild boars roaming freely around town. For many Israelis, this was funny or curious or even cute. But for me... It was horrifying. My biggest fear had come true. The monster was back in my life. This time, however, I decided I wasn't going to just speed off. This time, I was going to face my fears head on. You can call it DIY exposure therapy, call it foolishness, call it whatever you want. But I was determined. I was going to confront my demon and look the beast straight in the eye. I packed a bag, threw in some extra batteries for my recording gear, and set out into the city where the vicious creature rules. But bravery has its limits. I was most definitely not going to embark on this terrifying adventure alone. Step one, meet the expert.
12: Hi, I'm Achyad Davidson, and I'm an ecologist.
11: Achyad shows up in a large hat, worn-out sneakers, and a polo shirt. He looks less like a fearless adventurer and more like a dad on a safari. But somehow, I feel safe. If anyone knows about wild boars, it's him.
12: I just uh, finished my PhD about wild boars in Haifa and the Carmel city, which I uh, researched in the past six years.
11: We start our search in Haifa's Carmelia neighborhood.
12: Carmelia neighborhood is the neighborhood with the most sightings and reports of wild boars in Haifa.
11: I feel a rush of adrenaline go through my body.
12: In Haifa, there's on average 50, 40 encounters of humans and wild boars per day.
11: 40 or 50 encounters per day. This is actually going to happen. I'm going to meet the beast. My voice starts to shake. I can feel cold sweat on my lower back. I try to calm down. After all, I'm here with an expert. He'll know what to do. And Ariad, for, just for the case we encounter wild boars today and they would attack us, what would we need to do? I don't know. Oh, boy.
12: Climb on a tree or just stand on your legs and, like, shout. You know, like, ah! or run.
11: Or run? Where's my bike when I need it?
12: It's a wild animal. If it decides to attack you, you're in real trouble. There's a lot of people in Haifa that don't come out of their house at night because they're afraid of wild boars.
11: If you ask me, totally makes sense. I gulp, and Achyad notices. He quickly promises that wild boar attacks are extremely rare. But still, as we walk around, I move into step two of my exposure therapy. Know thine enemy. I ask Ahriad a million questions about boars, But they're all really getting at the same thing. How on earth did we get to the point that these menacing 300-pound beasts rule the roost? For starters, he tells me, this is their natural habitat.
12: Like, you know, they, they were first here. We built the cities where they lived.
11: Haifa was built on the slope of the Carmel Mountain. There are dozens of ravines, or wadis, running through the city. And those wadis are and have been for millennia, wild boar territory. So in order to keep the boars out of the residential areas, many of the Zwadis are now fenced off. But that doesn't seem to work. The boars are simply too clever.
12: They just bypass the fences, no problem.
11: The city has become their playground. They enter people's vegetable gardens, take baths in inflatable kiddie pools, and sleep on discarded mattresses and sofas left on the sidewalk. And wherever they go, They leave behind a trail of chaos. See, wild boars are omnivores. They'll basically eat whatever they can find. So urban environments like Haifa, with plenty of compost and overflowing trash cans, are to wild boars like...
12: The free diner, and I can't blame them.
11: But that's not all. Wild boars, Achiad continues as we get into the car to explore another site reproduce at an incredible pace. And what's more, their main predator, the leopard, has practically gone extinct in Israel.
12: No leopards, no other big predators, a lot of food and water.
11: If that's the case, I ask Achyad, why don't we become the boar's natural predator? Their number one enemy. Why don't we just hunt them down and drive them back into the woods? Not really an option, he explains.
12: In areas with High hunting pressure areas, the female wild boars can reproduce earlier, they become like sexually mature earlier.
11: In other words, the more you hunt, the faster they reproduce. What the hell? They seem to have an answer to everything.
12: Let's go and see. Um, we get
11: out of the car and walk over to what's called in Hebrew, a a massive green dumpster. It has a heavy chain which is tied to a metal pole. A safety precaution against boars going inside and flipping it over. Elsewhere in the city, bins are placed in little shelters with grates or gates. But once again, the boars have the upper hand.
12: They learn how to open the gate and take out the bin. You gotta be kidding. Yeah, it's the 21st century, but we can't find a solution for wild boars, it's crazy.
11: Everywhere we look, there are signs of the monsters. And yet, despite Achyat's expertise, we still haven't spotted the beast itself. I can't decide whether I'm relieved or disappointed. Then, as we jump over a fence and descend into one of the wadis, Achyat suddenly pauses. I tense up. He points to the leafy ground and I mentally prepare for step three of my exposure therapy, the encounter.
12: You see, this, this is like a, a trail of, of, of wild boars. This is wild boar feces. Here's, here's another feces.
11: My heart starts racing. Wild boar feces? We must be close. I try to hide my fear and instead put on my investigative reporter's hat. And how, how do you know that this is not dog poop?
12: How do you know, because it's like dried uh, figs. So if you look here, you see- Long story short,
11: it looks different. Having learned more than I ever thought I'd know about boar poop, we follow a few more leads and trails till Achyad once again points to the ground. This time, footprints.
12: You see the ground here. There's a party here every night. They just go through all of the gardens, eat everything they can find.
11: We hide out in the brush and wait. It's hot, and there are seemingly endless mosquitoes. I think I'm
12: getting eaten by mosquitoes. Yeah, me too.
11: But we're committed. With every crackling sound, every rustling noise, I turn around, fully expecting to meet the enemy. Nothing. Although I've spent the entire day on edge, I'm now surprisingly let down. Ariad comforts me.
12: It's a wild animal, you can't invite them.
11: A few hours later, and with the boars nowhere in sight, we decide to call it quits. My DIY exposure therapy was officially a failure. And what's worse, in the days and weeks that follow, everybody around me seems to come across the animal. I get constant texts and calls from friends and colleagues who share accounts of their harrowing encounters with boars. Marie, you're not going to believe this, but I actually just saw a bunch of boars running across. And all of a sudden, like, out of the trees comes this enormous wild boar and like dashes the other way, like sprints, okay? And
4: um, like, I wasn't even looking for them, but made me think of you.
11: I read up on exposure therapy online. Actual exposure therapy, which it turns out is way more sophisticated and elaborate than my miserable attempt. On anxietycanada.com, it says in bold letters be patient and take your time. And the more often you practice, the faster the fear will fade. So let this be a warning to the boars of Haifa. Step four of my exposure therapy I'll be back.
0: Marie Rude. Marie actually did return to Haifa a bunch of times, but to her delight slash dismay, she never actually managed to encounter a wild boar. So on one of those trips, she visited the only place in town where she knew there would be a porcine presence, Mayan Habira, the city's most famous pork restaurant. The only problem? Marie's a vegetarian. So she asked our production intern Laura Kapaljushnik, a pork-eating Brazilian, to join her. Here is Marie again.
11: Mayana Bira feels like a mix between an Eastern European tavern, a British pub, and the Middle Eastern Stikia. The walls are covered with agricultural tools and musical instruments. There is even a vintage bike hanging from the ceiling. But the most noticeable thing about this joint? The people. It seems as if they're a permanent fixture of the place. And uh, how often do you come here? Yeah, a lot.
7: Yeah. Uh, yes, uh, So you come here uh, for, uh, for lunch? Yes, for lunch. Yeah.
11: And for dinner? For also, also, also,
7: everything, everything. <laughs> <laughs> we eat meat every every time. <laughs> uh, uh. I love people, so this is the place to meet people, you know.
9: Every day I am here every
11: in the thing? place. Every
9: day. Every day for uh,
12: f- four, five, six hours.
11: I secretly wonder whether they come here so often because it's the only place in Haifa where humans are still ahead in the battle against the pig. Meir, the owner, interrupts my thoughts and greets us as if we're family.
6: I am the owner of my My name is May Ruven and I born in Haifa and I live in Kiratatar.
11: He tells us all about the history of the place, how his immigrant parents opened it in the early years of the state.
6: I was seven years old. After the school, I came to here to help.
11: And how, over time, it became a favorite dye for local harbor workers. Today, he says, with satisfaction, it's basically an institution. What's on, what's on
6: the menu? All of the regelkrochart. All, all of the food is Jewish food.
11: But usually, Jewish food doesn't have pork in it, does it?
6: But uh, in Romanian, in Poland, it was uh, with pork. I, my mother was from Romania, my father was from Poland.
11: And do you have anything for vegetarians?
6: What, what is this vegetarian?
11: Well, at least Laura would be well fed. This is
10: a pork, it's smoked sparrows. Ah, okay. Enjoy.
11: Can you describe how it tastes like? It's a little bit spicy but also very soft. It's delicious. This is a lot of meat. Probably I won't eat dinner. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. We stay for a while, chat with Meir and the other diners, joke around and have some beers. Oh, cheers. It's all very nice and safe. But not for a single minute do I forget that the wild beast is still lurking just outside.
0: Zev Levi scored in sound design this episode, with music from Blue Dot Sessions. Sela Weisblum mixed it all up. Thanks to our wonderful dubbers, David Harmon, Asaf Bar-Yosef, Ksenia Milyutinskaya, and Boaz Dekil. And Tzvi Dirman, Niva Ashkenazi, Michael Vivier, Alicia Vergara, Michael Friedman, Wayne Hoffman, Esther Werdiger, Yuval Cherlo, Jeffrey Oskowitz, Matan Abrams, Ann Silber, Hai Moron, Roy Kilron, Sheila Lambert, Erica Frederick, Jeff Fagan, Joy Levitt. You can catch up on all our past episodes on our site, IsraelStory.org, or by searching for Israel Story wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all under Israel Story. Lastly, if you're interested in sponsoring episodes of Israel Story, email us at sponsor at israelstory.org. Our staff includes Yochai Metal, Zev Levi, Yoshi Fields, Skyler Inman, Nomi Schneider, Adina Karpuch, Eli Blyer, Sharon Rappaport, and Rotem Tzin. Sonia Eppelbaum, Laura Kapelushnik, Tanya Huyard, and Matthew Littman are our wonderful production interns. Jeff Umbro and Jesse Adler from the Poglomerate are our marketing team. Amishi Harman, and we'll be back next time with a brand new Israel Story episode. So till then, Shalom Shalom, Oink Oink, and yalla
8: bye. <laughs> The day I finish high school, it's not that important. It's the trip to the beach, it's the trip to the beach, it's the trip to the beach, it's the trip to the